like to turn to Psalm 73. We'll be taking a few verses out of it. Obviously, I haven't got time to go through the whole thing, but I'm going to give you a good overview. Could you just turn me down just a wee bit, please? Uh, I'm going to try and give you an overview, or a flavour, if you like, of what this psalm is all about. Just before I start, I'd just like to say... um, Angela just asked me to say thank you for all your prayers during a, when she was sick and all your support, so thank you. Um, right, we'll start with verse 1. <clears throat> Psalm 73 on verse 1. It says, Truly, God is good to Israel even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. Verse 3, For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. We'll just leave that there and we'll just bow in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father and Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, I'm well aware of my frailty, Lord, this morning to even come, Lord, and bring your word. But Lord, I thank you, Jesus, that your spirit dwells within each and every one of us. Lord, I thank you, Lord, that I don't do it in my own strength, but in yours, Lord. And Lord, I just ask... In the name of Jesus, Lord, that you would, Lord, just flow through this vessel. Lord, that you would speak unto your people, Lord, this morning. Lord, I pray you would hide me behind your glorious self. That they would see the risen and the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ in all things. Lord, it's your word. Lord, and I just pray, Lord. Lord, expound it unto your people in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving you thanks. Amen. So, you know, with a probably know me by now, I like to get into a bit of background of things. And the first thing I'd like to go into is a bit of background of of the man who wrote this. It wasn't David, it was a man called Asfa. And Asphor was um, a worship leader, if you like, in the tabernacle. So he had, a, he had a, a pretty pivotal role. But his name means actually one who gathers together or a collector. And he was a descendant of a man called Gershom, who was the son of Levi. So he's a Levite. <coughs> And uh, in First Chronicles uh, 6 and 39, you'll find that he was commissioned by King David. Uh, he was put in charge of the worship. And you'll also find in Second Chronicles 5 and 12 that he performed the dedication of Solomon's temple. So you see, he served for many, many years. He would have served in the tabernacle. And what you have to realize is that this man would have seen the glory of Israel. He would have seen it at his very peak. But also, 
he would have seen some of the real corrupt things that had gone on in that time. Even the time of trouble with David and his son Absalom. He would have seen all that. He would have witnessed that. And even also in to Solomon's reign, part of Solomon's reign. He would have seen these things. <clears throat> and I think this orchestrated probably part of the reason why he even wrote this psalm as it was because of his experience, obviously. You can see this. So Psalm 73 actually deals with a question. It's asked, why do the ungodly prosper? And I'm sure we've all done that. I'm sure we've all said, you know, why does there not some divine judgment just come down on these people that just don't seem to have a care in the world and just seem to carry on the merry way? Well, you know what? I love, one of the attributes about the Bible is I love is its honesty. We see it all the way through. There's no other book like it. You read a biography, you think they're superhuman or something. But the Bible's not like that. It shows you men's frailties. It shows you the weaknesses. It shows you the fears. And this is exactly what this man put down in his psalm. He left nothing out. He was honest about the way he was feeling. So he's writing this psalm in hindsight. Because when you look at the very first verse, he says something. Truly God is good. And it says God is good to Israel. But in fact, if you get into the Hebrew rendering of it, it says God is good. Truly good. And only good. And also to Israel. That's what it gives the gist of. So it gives you the idea that God is good to everybody. Whether they like it or not, people enjoy the benefits of a good God. And that's everybody. That is everybody. In fact, in Matthew 5 and 45, and I'm sure you'll know this verse, that ye may be the children of your Father, which is in heaven, for he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. You see... There is something in this world and it's God's restraining power. We're still under grace and we're still under mercy. I know the world doesn't act like that, but that's just the truth of it. That's the truth of it. Because when you look in the scriptures, even when the Lord Jesus Christ came into the temple... And he picked out the scroll of Isaiah. And then he starts speaking the word of God. And you'll notice he ends with something. It's in Luke chapter 4, and verses 18 and 19. Listen to what he says. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he have anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. Now verse 19, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now if you look over in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, he's left something out. 
Because in Isaiah 61 and verse 2, it says to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. He leaves that out. Why does he leave that out? Because we're not under vengeance. He's there because we're still under the acceptable year of the Lord. Because that's the restraining of God. You see, and we are all here because of one reason and one reason alone. Because of the mercy of our great God. Because of the grace that he afforded us. That unmerited favour. But also grace gives the idea of time. We have a time to conform to the will of God. That's what it's there for. But you see, whether we like it or not, this time has a time when it comes to an end. That's when you get judgment. That's when you get vengeance. And we're all here because there was time afforded to us. Because the Lord gave us time to have an encounter with him. That's why we're here. And when we think about it, if that time was cut short, it's not even bare thinking about if that time was cut short. And the Lord does the same even on this earth now. Because even in Psalm 45, verses 8 and 9, and I love this, it says, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He's more compassion than any man or any woman would ever have. He's slow to anger and of great mercy. The Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. You see, that's the Lord. That's the great love of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the great love of him. Now we get to the second part of the first verse of Psalm 73. And it says, even to such as are of a clean heart. So I want to delve into a question. We've asked, first of all, why do the ungodly prosper? But before we get into that, I want to ask another question. Why should we live holy lives before God? What's the point in it? You know, when we, we, we look around, the world's just carrying on, and yet we're meant to live a holy life. The Lord's told us to. We're meant to be obedient. So why should we do this? What, what benefits is there to that? And it's funny because we're not the only people ever to ask this question. It's been asked many, many times. And you know what? In, even in the early church, <clears throat> they started to look at the congregations. As time rolled on after the Lord, uh, the crucifixion, and he rose again, after the disciples, as years rolled on, they started to say, something is happening in the church and it's not good. They said the power is diminishing. There's something happening. What is it? And they put it down to one thing. They narrowed it down. I I, I read many, many books on this. And they narrowed it down. People were starting to preach a hyper grace. And not walking in obedience to the word of God anymore. And that's the truth. So I, I put down a few pointers 
of the benefits of us living before God. The first thing, it creates an intimacy with God. You can't live like the devil and then know the Lord. Not in an intimate way, not in a way you should know him. I always loved the way Leonard Ravenhill put it. He said, a sinning man stops praying, but a praying man will stop sinning. And it's true. You can't come into the presence of God and be the same. Never happens. And notice what the Lord said in Matthew 5 and 8. He said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Number two is we become more effective in God's work. When we get intimate with God, we get a zeal for him. We can't help it. We want to do what the Lord wants us to do. And then we become vessels, fashioned and made by God's hand onto honour. Number three is we become a witness. We become a witness by the way we live our lives. Because everybody else is doing what the world does and then somebody looks at a Christian and say, hang on a minute, why are they different? What's different about them? Why do they seem to be different to me? And they will know that somebody has an encounter with God because they are vastly different to the way the world looks. That's a witness. Number four, our prayer life becomes more effective. When we get to know God, when we get intimate with God, we get that prayer where we just feel the Lord in the closet. When we know he's with us, when there's no more of that, when you just, I remember when I first started walking with the Lord, I used to get on my knees and I used to think, is there any point? I don't feel a thing. But you know what? That's when we persevere. That's when we say, well, Lord, I know your word is truth. I know you're there. And I'm going to continue. And you see, some of the greatest times I've ever had has been in prayer with the Lord. Whether it's just been walking, whether it's just been even tidying up and just praying. I mean, people think I'm crackers anyway, so it doesn't make no odds. So there I am talking away to myself, like, you know. But it has some of the best times I've ever had in my life. And you see some of the times, the worst times in my life, and I just think, Lord, I can't even say anything to you. I can't come and pray. I can't do this. But I've done it anyway. And that's some of the times I received the greatest strength and blessing from the Lord. Effective prayer. Number five, you want to say thank you to the Lord for what he's done? Then live right before him because it's pleasing to him. If you read Ephesians in chapter five, you'll soon know it says a sacrifice unto God is a sweet smelling savour. In other words, a life or a sacrifice life before him is pleasing unto God. And number six, it's our responsibility. If we take upon the name 
of the Lord Jesus Christ, then that is a mighty, mighty name to take on. And it's a might of a responsibility to take on, each and every one of us. We don't realise it at times, but it is because his name is holy. And when we take that name on, we shouldn't take it lightly because in all honesty, it's important to understand the responsibility that comes with the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why in Romans 13 and 13, it says, let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering or wantonness, not in strife and envying. Because we are to be holy as he is holy. Now, if you want to have a look at Psalm 73 and verse 2 with me. The psalmist says this. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slept. Now, who's ever been there? Thank God for honest people. (laughs) There's only a few of us then. (laughs) We've all been there. Let's be honest. We've all been there. We've all been on that slippery slope. We've all decided that we can't do it. We've had enough. That's it. I'm not going back to church and everything else and given up we've become disillusioned well you know what so did this psalmist so did this man he become disillusioned with it you see when you read in the bible Jeremiah become disillusioned with it we think we're the only ones that have ever been there we haven't that's why I say it's great to have the honesty in this book and we know something He gives us the key to why he started to slip in the next verse, in verse 3. He says, For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And you notice there's three words there that just give it away. When I saw. He started to look at the world. And he took his eyes off the Lord. So when I saw them wicked people, when I saw their prosperity, that's when he started to slip and that's when you're going to slip. When you start looking at the world through rose-tinted glasses, then you will slip because that's what happens. Because we start to look at the world and we start to look back at things and maybe we start even to think of memories and think, wow, How good a time that was. But you know what? We seem to have very short memories. Because I lived in the world a lot longer than I've been walking with the Lord. But you know something? Sometimes when I think back, and I try not to do it, but I think back, it doesn't even seem like me anymore. But you see some of the things that had happened, people used to look at me and say, he's got it all together. Boy, he's got everything. They used to say it to me. You've got everything together. You're the life and soul of the party, everything. Boy, your life's great. You know what? They didn't see when I used to shut the door. 
They didn't see them things and problems that used to hound me. They didn't see the problem that I used to have to. I used to have to drink before I even went anywhere because I used to have anxieties about meeting people. They didn't see that. They didn't see the times that I used to have to go and, 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 and take so many drugs that I was so out of my head just to try and get a bit of relief. They didn't see that. They just saw this man that was happy-go-lucky that seemed to have everything. Sometimes we have short memories. And you know what? And so did Israel. If you remember, when they were brought out of Egypt with a strong hand. Yes, they were in the wilderness, don't get me wrong. But they were in the wilderness. The Lord had them in the very palm of his hand and he provided everything for them. And they were free. They were free. And what happened? Let's go back to Egypt and be slaves again. They forgot how hard that bondage was. And that's exactly what the world does. It brings you under a bondage. It doesn't matter how people look on the outside. There's always a bondage. There's always a catch to it. It's never free. See, the psalmist here, Asaph, his perspective had changed. So when you start to have a look at a few verses through Psalm 73, you'll start to see, if you look at verse 5, he says this, his perspective completely gets distorted. He says, they are not troubled as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. In verse 9, he says this, they set their mouths against the heavens, and their, their tongue walketh through the earth. In, verses, in verse 12 he says, Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. Here he is, he's in full moan mode. That's what it is, isn't it? It's full gripe. There we go. This is it. He's really going for it now. But you see, he's saying he has no strength left. He has all these problems and he's been doing everything right. What's going off? Why why do I feel like this? And then the pain and the anguish comes because he's feeling like this. Verse 16 says, When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. A pain had erupted in the psalmist. And he was dwelling on all these things and he was starting to dwell on what the ungodly had and, and, and what he couldn't do and, and how he'd walk with the Lord and how, how his walk should be better and how he should have more things than they should have. And he starts to get on like this and then he gets this pain in his heart and this burden comes on him. Why? But then he hits this conclusion. And I love this. Verse 17. He feels like this. He thinks like this. And then he says this. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. You notice something? I went into the sanctuary. 
he went into the very presence of God. He starts to walk in and he feels the holiness of a creator, of his almighty God. And he says, how can they even stand in the midst of you? How can they stand in the midst of a holy God? Lord, now I understand. Lord, now I see what you've been trying to show me. Now I understand. Even when we look at John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Look at everything that man would have gone through. He would have seen his friends martyred. I mean, they tried to kill him. They tried to boil him. And then he was even put and exiled in the the island of Patmos. Everything he'd gone through. I'm sure there was times when he thought, Lord, what's going on here? Surely I've walked with you. Sure, I've seen you. I've met with you. I've ate with you. What's going on, Lord? And then all of a sudden, the Lord meets him. That disciple who Jesus loved was flat on his face as though he was dead before a holy God. And you've got to know that in that instance, John would have thought, Lord, I can stand before you. I can stand before the majesty of the Lord. And that's what the psalmist sees here. He sees the majesty of God and then he says, oh, what a fool I've been for thinking such things that they prosper. His eyes begin to open to God's perspective and not to man's perspective. He starts to see eternity and not just a brief period in time. He starts to see what the Lord has shown him the utter end of those who don't know him. Because that's what it comes down to. And listen to this. It gives a confession. Psalm 73 verse 21, he says, Thus my heart was grieved. I was pricked in my reign. So foolish was I and arrogant. I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by thy right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. You notice what he says? He says, my heart was grieved. And then he says, I was pricked in my reins. That, that word reins there is actually kidneys. It gives this symbol of where your emotions come from. He says, I let my emotions get the better of me. And then he says, so foolish was I. I was like a dumb animal that didn't know any difference. And then he goes on and he says, Nevertheless, I continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by thy right hand. Do you know what that means? He's saying, it's the right hand of fellowship. He was saying, you see all through that, Lord, you were with me. You never left me and you never abandoned me all through that time. When I was thinking those things, when I was saying them things, Lord, you were still there. You wouldn't leave me. And then he says, Surely thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterwards receive me in glory. In other words, he's saying, You have a plan and purpose for my life. You have ordained my steps. And even when the end comes, you're going to receive me into your glory. Isn't that beautiful, the conclusion he comes to? And that's the conclusion we should come to. Because you see... Psalm 73 describes how quickly a man or a woman can slip from off the rock. 
They can slip from that solid foundation that they are bent on by taking a look, by taking their eyes off the Lord, off his word. But it shows us the greatest reward that is open to us. You see, the Lord never said it was going to be easy. And this is the thing. You see, in Matthew 16, 24, look what he says to his disciples. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's what he said. In 2 Timothy 3 and 12, it says, Yea, all they that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That's what it says. But you see, there's a key. There's a key to this. Even though it says these things, there's a key to overcoming. We forget this. And this is what the church, I believe, the modern church has slipped up on badly. We're to overcome. Why are we to overcome? Listen to this. Everything that Paul goes through. You see the disciple Paul, everything he went through. All them hard times, all them tribulations. He went through because he had one of the greatest revelations in the Bible. Now listen to this. Colossians chapter 1, 27. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 1 John 4 and 4. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. When we understand the God of all creation, of everything, dwells where? In you. In you. Then you should know you've already overcome. And this is one thing I don't understand. People say, well... You know what? I'm, I'm, I'm not going to step out for, for the Lord because, you know what? The devil comes at you. Yes, he does, but God's bigger than him. He's defeated. The Lord of glory's in you. What are you waiting for? This is what the early church knew. They knew Jesus Christ was in them. They were able to go and even sit in the prisons but glorify God because he was in them. It's what Paul said, these light afflictions, I don't care. Because God's in me and I'm going to overcome. I'm going to run my race. I'm going to get my crown of life because the Lord of glory died for me and he's in me and he's in you. Don't let this world get you down. Don't, Don't take your eyes off the Lord to have a look at what the world's doing. You have greater riches than the world could ever, ever bore. You have the glory, the Lord of glory in you. You have the light of the world in you. You have the truth in you. Just remember that, brother, sister. Just remember that. That's why we should overcome. So what is our aim? Our aim is to finish our race. I love what Paul says to Timothy. Towards the end of his life, he says, I fought a good fight. I've finished my course and I've kept the faith. Why does he say that? He says it because laid up for me is a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, 
but unto all them also that love is appearing. That's what we're aiming for. The Lord of glory to come and give us a crown. Blessed be his name. And Jim finishing. Psalm 73, 28. This is the last, last verse of the psalm. He says, <clears throat> declares this, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. It's beautiful. So why do the ungodly seem to prosper? Well, the real reason is it's a perspective that we have. We seem to look at other people and we always think their life's better, their marriage is better, their job's better, the grass is always greener. But the truth is, you see when their door closes, everybody can put a face on. Everybody can put a facade on. Because trust me, I've done it many a times. You see, it's a perspective. We know that when this life is over, that we know we're guaranteed to be in the presence of the Lord and to be in his kingdom and the blessings that come with it. The reality is, the ungodly, it's their best they're ever going to get is this world. They go to what is truly, and now we say this quite a few times, God forsaken. But you know what? There's nowhere on earth that is truly God forsaken. But you see how that is truly God forsaken. And that is a terrifying prospect. That is truly God forsaken place. It's a place of burning and very much acquainted with pain and grief and sadness. But that's the reality of the ungodly if they don't turn to the Lord. That's the reality of it. And I just want to share this last verse with you in 2 Corinthians 4 and 17. It says this, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That's what it is. We'll go to glory. And I just just want to say this to you <clears throat> I remember when I was at my my dad's bedside <clears throat> he lived a life very ungodly he didn't know the Lord at all he knew <clears throat> that his end was coming and I remember talking to him about the Lord and praying with him And then he ended up getting saved. But you know what? I seen the relief and the burden come off that man like I'd never seen before. I'd never seen him smile like that before. I'd never seen him rejoice in that before, even when he was facing his death. Now you can't tell me you could give somebody billions you can't tell me that they would trade that for what my dad got just before he died. Not one, not one pound of it. Because the Lord of glory had come into that man's life. 
And he knew that that wasn't his end. And he knew he was forgiven. Brother, sister, let's rejoice in the fact that Jesus Christ loves us. We are forgiven. We are not the ungodly, but we are overcomers because Christ is in you. God bless you, each and every one of you.